This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. Now, last week, the temporary suspension of America's debt ceiling ended. That means the U.S. federal government can't get into any more debt until the ceiling is raised. Now, remember, during the Obama years, there's a couple of times when the Republicans initially refused to raise the ceiling, and that can quickly become a crisis point for the administration, which finds itself with no money to spend on things like staff salaries, for example. So to avoid further conflict, a law was passed suspending the debt ceiling, but that finished on Wednesday, March the 15th, 2017, last week. So what happens now? Well, let's look at this with Professor Steve Keen. First of all, I mean, is it really needed? I mean, budgets are agreed and passed. Uh, whether they're accurate or not, that's another thing. Uh, but they have a, a deficit or surplus in them. So that's passed as a law. So why the need for a debt ceiling? Why have another law doing exactly the same thing? To make the politicians feel important. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, a, that's really always necessary. an important thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, it's also an, an opportunity for a bit of argy-bargy, isn't it? Of course, it becomes yeah. a big negotiating I mean, it, point. It's, it's, it all comes back to misunderstanding uh, how governments are actually funded. And this is the, the whole focus on sound finance, uh, which is I – mean, I was actually spoke in the House of Commons last week, as, you, as you're mm. aware. And mm. I said, when you get inside this august chamber – and it really is an august chamber – uh, you you necessarily start to feel you should be more responsible, and the responsible you therefore transport is responsible for a household over to responsible for the country, and that is to make sure that you spend less than you earn. Think of the old Macorber. What's the old Macorber? Is it Macorber who said it that uh, income twenty pounds, expenses nineteen, eleven shillings and a half uh, is is heaven, and uh, the other way around is hell? Um, so you try to make sure the tax revenue slightly exceeds the uh, your spending, and there you're doing responsible management of the government's books, and it's all. Unfortunately, a load of bollocks. Mm. But, but it's that's good. where the idea of a debt ceiling comes from. You don't want to borrow more than a certain amount, and they've actually specified that certain amount in dollars rather than as a percentage of GDP, which means, of course, it's a fixed target you'll inevitably reach uh, if your economy continues growing and your government services therefore expand, uh, you're almost certainly going to hit that ceiling every few years. Yeah. Now, I know your argument, obviously, about the fact that, you know, if a government's running short of money, it can just print more uh, or issue more bonds. But, the, I mean, there are consequences uh-huh. with that. I mean, because government debt has gone up around the world. In the US, it's now over 100% of GDP. In the 70s and 80s, it was less than 40%. It, it rose sharply, basically, since 2008. Uh, now, I know you think household debt is a far bigger issue, but, I mean, there's got to be consequences of a government holding this amount of debt, hasn't there? Well, it depends on just how vulnerable that country is to international trade pressures, because if you're running a, a trade deficit at the scale of England's running now, it's talking about 6 to 7% of GDP, yeah. uh, then you've got to convert that much of your money every year into American dollars to buy goods overseas. 
And to do that, you've got to either issue bonds in the rest of the, uh, the world and get them paid for not in English pounds, but in American dollars. And therefore, your exchange rate uh, is vulnerable. And you can also, uh, if you have a, a real collapse, as happened to England some some years ago, you can find yourself being forced to go to the International Monetary Fund for, for backup loans. So there is a real danger about the extent to which exposes you on the, on the international market. But... Uh, if that isn't, uh, that's the main problem. That's the main, the only budget that I seriously, well, the two budgets I seriously worry about are the private sector's budget, uh, balance budget with the banking sector, and then a country's budget situation with the rest of the world. The government uh, is is the flexible element within those two because, and this is the, the simple practical point that I hope nobody is going to argue against, and that is that the the government is the only institution in society that owns its own bank. Mm. Okay. Now, because it has that capability, uh, it's not physically constrained in the same sense that you and I are. And if we don't earn enough money to cover our costs, then we go bankrupt uh, or we have to massively reduce our spending to survive. Uh, and, and again, if a country is running a massive trade deficit, then it can get in situations like Argentina and I think Australia has done, I think Australia will do in the next uh, few years, uh, those, those, are, those are impossible, those are physical constraints. So you simply, you and I can't make English pounds and England as a whole can't make American dollars. So with those two constraints, we really do have physical barriers to how far we can go. The English government can make English pounds. So it's then a question of what's the impact of it making those pounds on those other two crucial balances. And that's what I would like to get the debate to turn around to. And in that situation, the debt ceiling becomes an annoyance and an irrelevance, uh, but one which can periodically paralyse government spending. And if it actually did paralyse government spending, then a aggregate income of a country will fall in response to the fall in government spending. But, it, I mean, you're talking about printing pounds, or, I mean, whether it's annually, I mean, not physically printing, but uh, but you're, you're talking about quantitative easing. Now, the big danger, it's not an issue right now, but the big danger is that it can lead to inflation. And even the fear of inflation, if, if people are buying government bonds or any bonds and they see the value of what they're holding decrease, which you would with inflation, uh -huh. even if it hasn't happened yet, that, that expectation that, oh, I'm holding all of these bonds, the government's pumping all this money into the economy, um, that is going to lead to inflation. That is That, that means that um, the, the value of the bond I'm holding, because it's set for a uh, set price over a period, uh, the value of that money is going to uh, decrease. So people are going to be reluctant to, to, to buy bonds. So it's going to be more difficult, isn't it, for for the and, government, and government look, or the and, private sector to try and raise any more money. And look how how difficult it has been for them to do that and how much inflation has been caused by the government doing this. Well, not at all in uh, either case. Irony. <laughs> Zero. Okay. Right. In but other that, words... But that is the argument that... What, what, what I've given you is the, the, the classic the, argument. That's the classic argument. And the actually thing which amazes me is that I can expect it from old fogies like you. Um, <laughs> you're a younger fogie than I am, so I can call you an old fogie. Um, the, that that I expect because we all went through the experience of the 70s and 80s inflation and that's definitely scarred the, the generational memory. But the remarkable thing I find is that I get this said to me by students who are 19 years old right? Uh, as well. And the thing is, they they were not even alive when that inflation was occurring. For an entire life, inflation has been, I think, below 5% and falling over most of that period. But they've still, in, in, this is one thing which one generation has passed on to another, and that's the sphere of inflation. Now, when when you look at the the, the the overall economy, 
Um, yes, inflation can be damaging in some circumstances. In other circumstances, you know, everybody comes back to Zimbabwe and and uh, Weimar Republic Germany, um, not putting into context that both those countries had enormous military conflicts either side of what went wrong and, and you had a, a crazy dictator in charge at various times as well. But that those two examples uh, of hyperinflation are thrown up immediately and people have a whole set of mental mechanisms in, in their mind about how government spending will lead inevitably to this situation. Now, we've had uh, 10 years now of massive government spending since the financial crisis and inflation has continued to go down. The one factor which has been causing it to rise just recently has been the uh, rise in the oil price and that's now, it seems to be going in the opposite direction, hitting, hitting a ceiling caused by the availability of, of fracking oil, it's heading back down again. So that one particular commodity price boost to inflation has now disappeared. Uh, so it's it's intriguing that this fear is so deeply ingrained. Right, but just imagine, though, if you did uh, actually solve all the other problems apart from government debt. So you de- you wrote off uh, private debt, uh, so you didn't have this uh, you, this debt de- jubilee that you've been uh, talking about. Supposing you did that, then um, and you still then had a high level of government debt, uh, that would presumably, and then the, the response to that was quantitative easing, printing more money, then that would create inflation, wouldn't it? Because you're not being held back by uh, the problems of a lack of consumption amongst consumers. Uh, then you would have inflation, and then you'd be in the situation where the government would, would find it hard to be selling government bonds because this fear that they're going to be reducing in value. Well, you won't get it through. You won't get it through quantitative easing because that's that's just not putting money into the uh, into the fiscal economy. That'll inflate. That inflate, inflates asset prices, not uh, not the real economy. So you need to have government doing deficit spending uh, and financing that and financing that way. And if you then had a you know economy which was going gangbusters, so the employment was very high. In that situation, workers were getting wage demands, and that is the fundamental cause of inflation. The, the real cause comes down to workers' wage dem- uh, increases exceeding labour productivity. That's um, and labour productivity again comes back to um, you know, technological change and harnessing energy, yada yada yada, as we've spoken about before. But fundamentally, it's it's, it's getting sufficient pressure on employment that wages rise faster than output per worker rises. That's the fundamental cause of inflation. Now, first of all, we are so far from that situation right now, even with allegedly full employment now applies in England. I, I don't trust the American data, but the English seems reasonable. Even at now at that high level of um, of employment, we're not seeing any wage pressure at all. In fact, we're seeing wages falling compared to prices. So... It's we're, because, we're complaining because, yeah. because of household debt, though. So if you fix that, if you would have exactly. fixed, if you yeah. if you would have fixed that issue, then perhaps yeah. you would see um, yeah, then inflation. You'd be, then you'd be back where this. Then you'd be back where this discussion would matter. Right. Well, I mean, that's uh, what but, I'm trying to say. So if if we yeah, were in that situation, yeah. Uh, yeah. and 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 government debt was high, then it could be an issue because you would have inflation and and maybe some of those the, these arguments that you know that are being used by conventional economists would be applicable in that circumstance. Well, you'd have the problem there. You have the symptom they're worried about to begin with. You have inflation. If you have a gangbuster economy, low levels of private debt, high level of employment and wages rising dramatically faster than productivity, you get the inflation of the 70s and the 80s. So we're back in that. So we're actually in that situation. And then you're saying, well, what what should the government do about its level of government debt? And one particular answer is that the the, um, central bank should use its power to buy bonds back off the public to, to sell bonds to the public and take money out of circulation. 
And this was one of the ideas of open market operations back in the in the 70s and 80s, that the government, by the central bank, by doing that, by actually selling the bonds to the public, uh, would then take the money out of circulation and reduce some of the demand in the economy. So it's feasible to use the government, the level of government debt as a, as a control mechanism. But I, I also am going to um, break ranks a bit here with my post-Keynesian colleagues in general and say that looking at the, at the data, it's clear that the increase in the level of government spending and uh, has stopped the private sector ever going into negative credit until we got to the, the crisis of the, uh, the 2008 period. Uh, whereas in, before we had big government, there would always be ups and downs in private credit, but it would uh, tend to tend, it would never tend to get to the levels it's got to now. So, to some extent, government spending has enabled a higher level of private leverage that we ever would have had beforehand. That's one mark against it. And then you do, um, you know, I'm, I'm still open. I'm still working out what I what my overall conclusion is here. But I think there have to be occasional periods just saying we're going to do something to write the level of debt down. But the thing is, the government can finance its debt. This is the people think the government can't finance it when it's paying its interest on bonds. That is an operation done by the central bank, where the central bank credits people's bank accounts with money effectively it creates to pay the interest. It doesn't need um, to tax to pay that interest bill, whereas people's feeling is that they can only pay the interest if they tax us more, and therefore that's the danger. Again, because of the, 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 the what, what you actually have is effectively these bonds become a way the government distributes um, part of the economy's surplus, uh, you know, and I'm talking monetary surplus here, part of it distributes it back to the, to the bondholders. And if you go back to the 19th century and read Charlotte Bronte and French, you find that having a large stash of government bonds was a, a major source of income for many of the, the gentry class back then. And what you've effectively got is, because it's issued the debt, uh, then, and the, the debt's been bought by people in the public, then the government's paying money out that way. So it's almost like a form of government spending. Mm. Uh, and again, like all government spending, because the government owns its own bank, it can do its own operations internally. So it's, but I would still um, want to do some some tricks on various occasions to bring that uh, government debt level down. Because when you do look empirically over time, uh, the increase in the level of private debt has been enormous. Yeah. Well, and so what is the level? Of, what what is a meaningful level of government debt? And, yeah. and look at well, one of the one of one of the yeah. one of the immediate repercussions, and whether it's right or wrong, you have rating agencies like Moody's that are giving uh, AAA credit ratings to uh, to, to governments. Uh, and then when the government gets into high debt and it isn't doing enough as far as they're concerned to try and reduce that debt, then they say, well, oh, we're going to reduce your AAA credit rating. And that's that can be a problem, can't it? Because it becomes harder for those governments then to sell their, their bonds because there's there's many uh, 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 pension funds and the like that will just not buy anything that's not AAA rated. So it's not so easy for the governments to issue bonds. Not so, you know, so they, they, they're almost forced into uh, quantitative easing because they can't uh, raise money through the normal bond process. Yeah, uh, it, it'll have an impact on countries which are um, unable to issue, to issue bonds in their own currency. It doesn't affect if you can issue bonds in your own currency. So that's a real danger. And that, that comes back to the trade deficit role. Only, only when you have a massive trade deficit do you have problems about issuing bonds in something other than your own, your own currency. But again, I want to put this in historical perspective, but if you go back to the... 1950s, 1940s, the level of government debt in England was three and a half times GDP. 
and it's just monotonically reduced from that level down to about uh, 0.4 of GDP, a 40% from 350%. Uh, so the government, the economy has actually carried a much higher level of private debt, uh, government debt during peacetime uh, than it's now worried about at the moment. So it's not the practicality of it, it's the economic circumstances in which it occurs. And the economic circumstances of the post-war period were a trivial level of private debt. And that trivial level of private debt meant that the, the, the economy could be stimulated by credit. Uh, there was a huge velocity of turnover existing money. It was not a problem. People were happy to spend because they weren't worried about can they pay their debt tomorrow. Uh, that's now become, because there's so much debt that people are spending less rapidly, credit demands also evaporated. So that double whammy is hit after the financial crisis. And then in response to that, the government spending has necessarily risen, necessarily running a deficit. So we we have to, again, this is one of those difficult situations where you need to think about three things at once. And humans are very good at thinking about one thing at once. <laughs> Not particularly crash out at two, and most of us fail abjectly at three. And that's the problem. We're focusing on this one thing and not looking at its relation to the two others that matter, which are the focusing, focusing on government debt and ignoring the private sector debt and ignoring the trade deficit, you are going to go wrong. Right. Okay. And the trade deficit is the interesting third one, which is often ignored, isn't it? We look at the inter mm, yeah. interplay between private and public, uh, government and private debt, and uh, uh, not the third one. So, um, okay. So the, the lift shaft conversation, that 30 seconds you've got with a little old lady who says, isn't it terrible that the government owes uh, as much as the country earns in a year? Why would you tell her, if you've got 30 seconds before she gets off at level 14, um, how are you going to use that 30 seconds to try and put her mind at rest that actually 100% of GDP as a government debt is not something she should worry about? I'd have to say that, I'll say, well, you're thinking about the government like it's a household. And if, if that was true, you'd have your own printing press in the basement and you wouldn't have any problems, would you? Uh, now, of course, you don't have a printing press in the basement, but the government effectively does. So it can actually create that money quite easily and pay that debt quite easily. It's not the practicality of it. It doesn't have to tax you to pay that interest bill. It's just what the impact of that interest of that behaviour is on the rest of the economy. And at the moment, we need governments to create money because the banks aren't doing it. Right. Uh, I make 30 seconds there? Yeah, that's right. She's on level 13. She's gone. She uh, She's still confused. She's shaking her she's, head. She's, she's, yeah, she's yeah. a younger need generation. Need to get a cappuccino again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, are there, so, so the um, so the countries which are, are most liable to risk if they're holding a high level of government debt are those that are trading bonds in a currency other than their own, probably in uh, like emerging economies, for example, which do get hit, which are, are going to get hit by the uh, rise in U.S. interest rates, for for example. Um, yeah, they're the ones that are vulnerable, and and then that's also the story for any country like England, which is running a large trade deficit. Uh, that's its real problem. Now, I think it would take a hell of a bad change in economic circumstances for England to have to issue bonds in a foreign currency to get finance government spending. But it necessarily, uh, the private sector and the government uh, together are necessarily, uh, and particularly the banks indeed, are issuing bonds it, it denominated in foreign currency to raise foreign currency because to run a 7% trade deficit, you've got to be borrowing American dollars from the rest of the world. 
And that ultimately is going to reduce the level of uh, funds you have to invest in your own economy. So it backfires on you that way. And if it goes too far, then you get to the point where people say, well, I'm not going to buy these bonds without getting a substantial rate of return. And then you have the whole problem that your your debt service becomes a larger and larger proportion of your spending. And that adds to your trade deficit and you're in deep doo-doo. So Britain needs to fix its trade deficit issue, which, uh, you know, maybe Brexit will sort that out for them. Certainly the, the weakening of the pound is going to help with that. But in the meantime, given that we are trying to balance three things at once and, uh, you know, that they're all looking bad, surely the government should be saying, well, OK, we need to do something about trying to reduce government debt, shouldn't they? Well, if they do it directly, they make it worse. And because, this is what we because, because, because they're going to pull money out of the economy, pure and simple. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Europe, that's the country, that's the, that's the part of the world which has implemented the policy that national governments should directly uh, control their de- de- debt levels by reducing their spending. Now, what actually happens when the government does that, and particularly in the European case where it's paying back bonds that uh, are not owned by nationals of its own country, uh, then in that situation, running a surplus, which is what the Greek government's been forced into, is destroying that much money every year in terms of what's circulating in Greece, and at the same time telling Greece to grow in monetary terms. Now, if you're reducing, first of all, if you reduce government spending, the, the G minus T goes from positive to negative and working out your uh, t- your, t- your total level of GDP, then that directly reduces GDP as well. So you, you're trying to you're trying to reduce your debt to GDP ratio, but you're doing something that directly affects the numerator as well as the denominator. So the ratio can remain pretty much constant. And then also because you're taking money out of circulation, there's less economic activity again, which further reduces the the, the denominator. And consequently, the attempt to directly reduce the level of government debt as a percentage of GDP can increase that ratio. And this is one of the um, elements of understanding a complex system that you you can't do this by thinking in in simple linear ways, which is what people always fall back to. And my analogy, what's going on here is a bit like a a car getting in a roundabout too quickly and skidding. The amateur driver, and I'm an amateur driver on this front, would tends to compensate for that by turning further in the direction they want to go, which puts the car into a spin. Mm. But the professional driver knows you turn Turn the wheels in the direction of the skid and then you continue going around the roundabout. And this is the story. What we're doing, we say you must reduce government spending to reduce government debt as a percentage of GDP is like turning the wheel into a skid. Now, look, we're all more or less in the same boat. I mean, there's uh, government debt is, is, has risen, particularly since the global financial crisis all around the world. You talk about having a debt jubilee to uh, to cope with private or household debt. I mean, it's only money we're talking about here. It's an artificial constru- construct. Couldn't every country in the world just say, well, let's just uh, let's just agree a level and write off debt? They could. This is the, the government's got the capacity to write, write its debt off uh, again in a way that is not um, not possible for the private sector because they could simply, you know, effectively make a declaration that we're paying our debt down or we can default on our debt. And this is one thing I think which is possibly going to happen uh, in some of the countries in the uh, European Union. If they leave the European Union, we know this is likely to happen with France, they will simply declare, that's it, we're not paying our debt and it's cancelled. And then when you do the books, of course, the government debt burden falls. Um, but so everybody. But then you get trade wars and uh, and the like that result from that because uh, people are a bit pissed off about the fact that you've just written your debt off. But, but I mean, we could agree, couldn't we? Couldn't everyone just say, right? As of the first of January next year, uh, we're all going to write this amount of money off off the the bottom line for every government in the world. Yeah, and that and this that again because of fundamentally the levels of debt, both of the private sector and the public sector, are an accounting entry. Mm. 
and uh, you know accountants can decide you've got to have a write-off on one side of your books therefore a write-off on the other and and bang you have a reduction in your level of debt so bankruptcy and, and bank and, and, and restructurings are a, a common part actually the behavior of, of banks all the time um, and it, it's tied up with other other legislative elements to it, but it's feasible to do that. It is basically like saying we have to reset the scores in a cricket match. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all gone badly. Let's start again. And look, the leader yeah. of the free world, he's an expert at uh, bankruptcy. He should know all about it. He's the man to help with uh, help us with this, isn't he? Indeed. Uh, That's uh, one of the reasons I thought he might be not so bad to get in control. I'm, I'm not so going to repeat that particular opinion again. But uh, yeah, that's that's quite feasible. Right. Whether he'll do it or not, I've got a feeling he follows the um, the line that the little old lady in the lip would have agreed to before she hopped in and bumped into me. Yeah. All right. Okay. And she's confused as all hell. I can I can mm. see her. She's uh, yeah. She's she hasn't got a clue what you're going on about. Uh, look. Uh, <laughs> All good. Um, another answer fixed. Uh, but will it happen? Uh, well, perhaps not in our lifetime. Well, maybe it will, maybe in our lifetime, but maybe a bit of hurt before it does happen. Steve, always good to talk. Thanks, mate. In the meantime, fixing government debt. Not now is the answer, it seems. That is the Debunking Economics podcast. Another one on Monday. Uh, does misinformation feed capitalism? If we had better information, could more people benefit from better investment returns? Don't assume the answer is always yes to these questions. That is next time with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.